You may be seated. Amen. God is, thank you, musicians. God is, God is God. God is the beginning. He's the end. He's the awesome. Uh, we can't really describe with words, but He's the essence of life, beginning. Amen. If you would turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 15, verse 17. And then put your finger in there, 15, 17. Uh, and go to Second Chronicles chapter 7. Second Chronicles chapter 7. We'll start off with Luke 15 and we'll go to Second Chronicles chapter 7 after that. Just going to read a few verses there. This is perhaps known to a good number of us. We read in Luke chapter 15 verse 17. And when he came to himself, that is the, the prodigal son who ran away, he said... How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? And I will rise and go to my father, and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no more worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. And then Second Chronicles chapter 7. Starting at verse 12. And the Lord appeared to Solomon by night, and he said unto him, I have heard your prayer, and have chosen this place to myself for a house of sacrifice. If I shut up heaven, that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, if my people which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will hear their land. Now mine eyes shall be open and my ears attend unto the prayer that is made in this place. And then down to verse 19. But if you turn away and forsake my statutes, and my commandments, which I have set before you, and shall go and serve other gods and worship them. Then will I pluck up them by the roots out of my land, which I have given them. And this house, which I have sanctified for my name, will I cast out of my sight, and I will make it a proverb and a byword among all nations." And this house which is high shall be an astonishment to everyone that passes by it. So that he shall say, What hath the Lord done thus? Or why hath the Lord done this way unto this land and unto this house? It shall be answered, Because they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them forth out of the land of Egypt, and laid hold on other gods, and worshipped them and served them. Therefore hath he brought them all this evil, Upon them. And we have this account takes place 
at what we is known as the dedication of the temple. It was a time when the nation of Israel built a place for God, a church. We'll just go back a little bit before that happened. It was Solomon who was at that time praying that prayer and God recognized the prayer and spoke to him. We'll just take a little bit of time, just go back a little bit to come to the point when that place was built. <clears throat> we know that the nation of Israel were captives, were held like slaves in Egypt for a long time. And after a significant period of time, God provided a way for those people to come out. And they eventually came to a land that he promised them. That was the land of Canaan, land we now understand is Israel. God provided for his people a country, a land, in which they could live their way of life, how he had undertaken for them to have. In Egypt... They were limited and restricted. They were physically limited and restricted because they were under bondage. But there were people around them who lived and believed other gods and they were a minority. Their way of worship, their way of living for God, and wasn't that structured, uh, they weren't able to. So God had set a place for them. This is your place. In this place, you will be able to live for me. And along the way, when they went from Egypt, they got to Israel, God instituted ways for them to live, set up a framework, a structure, laws for them to worship him. And then provided kings to lead them and to guide them. The house of the Lord was completed in the 11th year of Solomon's reign. started in the fourth year. It took seven and a half years or so for it to be built just go back a little bit uh, how that came to be we read I'll just uh, get these myself we read a few verses I think I've lost my place Never mind. God, uh, David as the king, had a heart to build uh, the the temple of God. But it became, it came to Solomon to do that. And Solomon, when he became king, he took that on. He recognized what David, his father, had done to build to prepare for that place to be, uh, to be built. And he started using some of the materials that were uh, prepared. And then he went and he realized we're not going to have enough of this and that. And he went to places where he could get that. He went to Lebanon and he said he made a contract with their king. said, I'd like have X tons of this wood. And he went to Egypt and he got some materials from there. It was, it was no secret that this was taking place. There were major contracts done. There were routes established. This took years. There was serious money that was spent. Uh, The nation knew about it, and the surrounding nations around them knew that this 
church, this temple, is being built. It was, this was done at a, at a, I guess you could call it a height of the Israeli nation. Because at that time, uh, prior to that time, they had to fight for the land. They had to get rid of those nations which were serving other gods, which would have been a hindrance to them. At the time when this was being built, there was peace around the land. Solomon was recognized as a wise man, as a wise king. There was money. There was a lot of money that, that the Israelis had. And the money was being spent. It was kind of like the government spending money and building things. In, in, uh, um, <clears throat> and we all know about it. And the people around us know about it because we buying materials from other countries and they know what it's for. This, this took place. And then we read, I'll get to these, that, um, just to get this in context. And Solomon determined to build a house for the name of the Lord and a house for his kingdom. And Solomon sent to Harem to the king of Tyre, saying, As thou didst deal with David my father, and didst send him cedars to build a house to dwell therein, even so deal with me. This is the contracts. And then, thus all the work that Solomon made for the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought all the things that David his father had dedicated, and the silver and the gold and all the things that had been stored up, and all the instruments, and he put the treasures among the treasures of the house of God. And then Solomon said, The Lord hath said that he would dwell, that he would dwell in the thick darkness, but I have built a house of habitation for you, and a place for thy dwelling place forever. And, the, and he turned his face and blessed the whole congregation of Israel, and all the congregation of Israel stood. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who hath with his hands fulfilled that which he spake with his mouth to my father David, saying, Since the day that I brought forth my people out of the land of Egypt, I chose no city among all the tribes of Israel to build an house, in that my name might be there. Neither chose I any man to be a ruler over my people Israel. But I have chosen Jerusalem, that my name might be there, and have chosen David to be over my people Israel. Then we, then Solomon says, but, God, but will God in very deed dwell with men on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee, how much less this house that I have built. There was a recognition that although they had expended this effort and that this place was going to be a place that would be recognized as God's dwelling place, that it is not going to be a place that can contain him. God doesn't dwell in a physical building. That building was important. It was a symbol. It was a reminder for them that this is their land, this is their nation, this is the God that had caused all this land around them to be theirs. That, is, that was the symbol, for, it was a reminder for them. The whole nation knew what was happening. In Second Chronicles chapter 7, it was we read, as part of the prayer and for the opening of the church or the temple or the, the sanctuary, there was a whole ceremony that took place. And Solomon prayed. And the Lord appeared unto him 
And we read that in verse 12. And the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said unto him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place to myself for a house of sacrifice. God recognized it and this was good. If I shut up heaven, God says, and there shall be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, them will I hear. Solomon had set this place, had established this place. Having been visited by God, having received direct instructions, it would be good to hear that Solomon and the nation of Israel lived happily ever after. But that's a fairy tale. Fairy tales aren't real. Fairy tales assume that there's, no, there's nothing else happening that's going to be contravening or it, nothing um, it just kind of plateaus keeps, just keeps going there's no such thing there's no such thing as no further obstacles there is an enemy and we have a spiritual enemy of our soul and we need to be watchful for our souls it's a shame that Solomon started so well and did really well but we, we know that in the latter part of his life, he became, uh, he, the Bible says he loved many women and he had many wives and he had wives from various nations and they, took, they started to worship the gods of those nations and his life turned away, became sinful and idolatrous. And so because he wasn't watchful, because he allowed sin to enter into his life idolatry came into his life and the whole nation turned away unfortunately from this time the land and we're not going to go through all the history this is not this, this is not the point but from that point on the god's dwelling place that stability that they knew the land that was theirs all the things that was given to them it became subject to big changes and fluctuations and dependent on whether some people or leaders chose to follow God or not. The books of Kings and Chronicles record events of kings and, and the nations until the complete fall of Israel and Judah and until they became enslaved. What happened over a period of time that that land that they had, that symbol of God's presence, their way of life was lost. They lost their identity. They lost the sovereignty. They were judged as a nation. The books of Chronicles and Kings tell us about good kings and about bad kings whose sin was exposed and they illustrate the importance and influence of a personal and communal or national worship of God. However, at that point, they can go back to one of these reminders. And there's lots of reminders in God's word, like Second Chronicles 7.14. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear. No matter what happens, they head away back. Does it apply today? How does it work? Are we God's people? 
Can we humble ourselves? Can we pray, seek his face, turn from our wicked ways? We're not, I'm not part of what was the nation of Israel. I'm not a son of Abraham or Jacob, I guess somewhere down the line. We're not part of that nation. We are not physical Israel. We are his treasured possession. Those who belong to him, who have chosen to follow Jesus, who have fo- chosen to follow his teaching, who have turned from their ways of life, who turned from this life of sin, repented, been baptized, received the Holy Ghost, they are God's people. Paul tells us, That Jesus gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. That's representative of us and we are God's people if we follow that way. Can we humble ourselves? What is humility? One way of looking at it is looking at the opposite. It's the absence of pride. Pride is when we are reliant on self. Pride is sometimes can be seen as something that's out there, extroverted, overt. But pride can also be, because that's what we're trying to lift ourselves up, our abilities above others. But pride can also be when we try to push other people away because, you know, they're not quite as where I'm at. Now, that's not quite so overt, but that's also pride. It basically is focused on self the self doesn't amount to very much and so when we humble we need to admit that I of myself I'm not someone like this someone pushing others away but I of myself don't amount to very much we read in Psalms the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and he saves such as have a contrite spirit God will hear when we are humble, when we contrite in the true sense of humility. And it is inward, it is not outward. The prophets reminded the nation of Israel, so rend your heart and not your garments. Your heart is inside. It can't be seen. You can tear your garments and you can have an ex- overt demonstration of humility but that's not what it's about rend your heart not your garment return to the Lord your God for he's gracious and merciful slow to anger and of great kindness he relents from doing harm he's not waiting when we do something wrong oh I told you so I knew that was going to happen sometimes people around us do that it's not the right way to be but they are that way and we condition our minds to those things and we, we shy away from doing what's right just because we might hear those words. Maybe we won't hear them, but we'll feel it by the way that they deal with us. God is not like that. He's waiting for us to ask, to come humbly to, to seek Him. We need to pray. Prayer is something that is humbling. It is humbling to ask. It is humbling to be earnest, to be wholehearted in prayer. Prayer, as we know, is meaningful communication with God, regular communication with God. We have heard it and we know we can't stay if we don't pray. We can't stay 
part of his body. We can't stay part of his peculiar people. We can't stay if we don't pray. It is an effort. It is a pleading. It is a recognition that we need an answer, not of self, but we need an answer from that one who's above us, who, who has set all this in place. Another prophet was reminding the nation of Israel. He says, And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. You search for me with all your heart. God is interested in us seeking for him with all our heart. This is not a quest or a mission, a place that we go searching for God in some mountain or monastery or, or, or a physical place. Prayer is not some repetition, a pose, a, a posture or a mantra, or waving a flag or burning candles or having a, a vigil of some kind. Although sometimes it might be demonstrated in some of those things. But God is interested in the heart. The reminder from the very beginning, from Moses, when he was leading the nation of Israel out, he was reminding them and telling them, looking into the future, saying, but when you get there to this nation of Israel, but from when you will, when, there you will seek the Lord, your God, and you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. These are words that are familiar to us. We have heard them before. They're in the New Testament. They're in various places in the Old Testament. We need to seek Him with all our soul. And that part we read, If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face, that seek back in Deuteronomy, uh, Chronicles, is the same seek as we read about in the New Testament. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Everyone who asks receives, who seeks finds me, and who knocks to him shall be opened. It's that kind of seeking that was, that was mentioned at that point there. That kind of seeking is not a passive seeking. It is a deliberate effort. It's something that we have to exert to get there. Colossians, if you turn in your Bible, Colossians chapter 3. Verse 1 and 2. If ye then, being risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God, set your affection on things above, not on things on earth. No matter what's happening, we, our lives are not to be dictated or controlled, influenced by the things that are happening around us. The nation of Israel allowed that to happen. King Solomon allowed it to happen. Other kings allowed it to happen. Individuals allowed it to happen. What we need to do is turn, repent. Another prophet was reminding the nation of Israel. Therefore say to them, says the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. These are elements that when Solomon prayed and God appeared... God gave them these, if you want to call them steps, points, whatever, some reminder that there is a way to turn to me. Does it work? Is it true? Well, I've got three examples, and there's many more. I chose perhaps maybe the most extreme examples of 
people turning to God. You may have heard of Ahab. The Bible tells us, Ahab did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. He was a king. He was a leader of the nation of Israel. He deliberately went and married a lady called Jezebel, who was a a daughter of a a worshipper of Baal. Because of him, the nation of Israel had drought for many years, three years. You might know that story, those events about Elijah when he came, Elijah, and the the drought and the (coughs) uh, sacrifice on the Mount Carmel. It was Ahab who was responsible for that. Ahab deliberately went and built temples to Baal. He took the Lord's priests and he had them killed. There were some in that kingdom who undermined some of that because they continued to live for the Lord and they hid some of those priests, some of those godly priests. Nonetheless, Ahab was a very wicked man. It got to the point where he saw a a nice bit of land and he said, I'd like to have that land. And he asked the man if he would sell it to him. His name was Naboth and he was a godly man. He said, no, this is my family's land. I'm not going to sell this. He got very cross and his wife said, oh, we can fix this. There's a straightforward way to fix this. Why don't we call a feast to worship God? Let's call a feast to worship God. And then what we'll do, we'll get Naboth to be in charge of that because he's a godly man. That'll, that'll suit it right. And then we'll call some sons of Belial, as they call them, liars, and say that he blasphemed God. And the penalty for that is death. That's exactly what happened. Godly man, goodly man, worship the Lord, allowed those people to, to speak falsely against him, accuse him, and then they, well, the penalty for that is they needs to be, he needs to be stoned. He was stoned and he died. At that time, we read what happened in First Kings. This is, to me, was rather surprising. First Kings, I'll just uh, find that myself, 17, uh, no, 21. First Kings seventeen twenty one. Verse seventeen, and the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, which is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, whither he has gone down to possess it. Ahab, wicked man, didn't think anything of, of those of that action, and he took it. And so the Lord sent Elijah to him to speak to him. In verse 19, thou shalt speak unto him, saying, Thus says the Lord, Hast thou also taken away his possession? And thou shalt speak unto him, saying, Thus says the Lord of God, In the place where dogs lick the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick thy blood, even thine. Then we read in verse 25, and, But there was none like unto Ahab, which did sell himself to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord, whom Jezebel his wife stirred up. And he did very abominably in following idols, according to all the things as the Amorites whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. And it came to pass when Ahab heard those words of the prophet of Elijah and all the things that were going to take place, 
that he rent his clothes and put sackcloth upon his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went softly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, Seest how they Ahab humbled himself before me? Because he humbled himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his days. But in his son's days will I bring evil upon this house. And they continued three years without war between Syria and Israel. Ahab had a genuine repentance at that point for those actions at that time. Now, unfortunately, that didn't last. And his life continued on a downward spiral and God judged him for that. But I chose that example that even a wicked man who deliberately went to do things against God recognized God's judgment and he knew what to do. And God gave the land rest, the nation of Israel at that time. We also, there's also another example which we perhaps read recently if we are reading the Old Testament at the moment. When the nation of Israel was finally taken away captive and then a remnant came back or came back to a remnant. Some came back and some were already there. And there was a scribe called Ezra. And he looked, he came to build repair the temple which was destroyed, the place where God's presence dwelt. But when he came and he saw what, how the people were, not so much the building, when he saw how the people were, he recognized that there was a way of life that wasn't right. It came down to the people who were there marrying people who were not of that way. What does that mean? That means that there was a big problem because God wouldn't accept their sacrifice. God wouldn't accept they weren't clean. Ezra recognized this and we read... In Ezra 10.1, while Ezra was praying, confessing, weeping, casting down before the house of the Lord, a very large assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel, and the people wept bitterly. They themselves recognized that they had done wrong, that they had not walked in the ways of the Lord. They, had, they chose to listen to, to that prayer and to humble themselves, and then... They had to go and fix up their errors. God allowed Ezra, who didn't sin himself, who wasn't part of this way, but on behalf of the nation, he turned and others turned and followed this way. And the commitment of the nation, to an extent, was restored. We also read in Luke chapter 15 about the prodigal son. This was a young man who chose to use the things that were, belonged to him to just be frivolous, just be silly, to take some bad advice, to appeal to his flesh. And when he had used it all up and he had spent it all, he didn't have much to his name. And he was left looking after some pigs. And we read in verse 17, when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven 
am before you and am no more worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. The prodigal son, he recognized he can't do anything more himself. He asked to be his father's servant. That's humility. He was going to communicate and he said to his father, I'm not going to, I'm not worthy to be your, your son anymore. He communicated. In our case, we would pray with God. And he did something. He rose up and he was deliberate about his action. He went from the place where he was and he went back. He sought that new way. God established a place for Israel, a place where his presence would dwell. Israel as a nation walked away from that. But God put a thing in place that you can come back. And that, that same message is true today. Whether it's for Israel, and I'm not Israel, whether it is for a prodigal son, whether it's for a king, whether it's for an individual, we all have a way to come to God's presence. We can come to a place where God's presence dwells. It is not a physical place. We know God doesn't dwell in a building. But we can return to serve Him. While he was still wise, Solomon said, There is no man that sinneth not. So this applies to all of us. All of us make mistakes. Sometimes we do things out of foolhardiness. Maybe we're foolish. We take wrong advice. There were certainly people that did that. Some people are deliberate. Some people are outright rebellious. But regardless of what it is, when we recognize that, there is a way to return, to restore to God's presence. We need to understand that the wages of sin is death. There is no place between God. God has no place for sin. Which means that if there is, it's like oil and water. Those two just don't mix. If there is sin, there is separation from God. God is not going to be anywhere where there is sin. But God does wake away for the sinner. In the Old Testament, the representation of God for the nation of Israel was that beautiful temple that they built, that, they, that everyone knew about. For us today, God, Jesus, dwells in me if we are found to be living in his way. God's presence is in our hearts. It's not a physical place. If we seek him, we'll find him and he will guide us. There are all kinds of things that we can allow into our lives that will become an influence, that will take us away. But the thing is, we read, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Wherefore, let him that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. There is no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above all that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. Wherefore, my beloved, flee idolatry. Flee, not just idolatry, but anything that will become an influence. 
Many of us can attest in this place that there have been things in our lives where we have had to recognize and cut those things off. Just the same like others have as well. We've had to deliberately seek Lord's ways. We've had to humble ourselves. We've had to follow His ways. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rules of darkness in this world. Jesus is available to everyone. He's available not just to the nation of Israel, but He's available to us today of whatever nation we are at. He wasn't available just 2,000 years ago, or 4,000 years ago, or 500 years ago, or 100 years ago, what we hear of the, the renewal of the Pentecostal movement. But He's also available today. He's available to this nation. He's available at this time. What we need is to be malleable. What we need is if we have fallen away, if we have, through foolishness, through mistake, through not watching the way, been diverted because we all as sheep have gone astray, simply because we've just taken our eyes off the ball, there is no such thing as a fairy tale happily ever after. Once we begin to live for the Lord, we realize there are obstacles that will continue to come our way, and we need to know the way to come back. There is an ongoing process of being molded, to be shaped, to be malleable, to allow ourselves, to allow Him to touch us. It is humbling to ask, but when we do, He's able to restore His presence in our lives. Praise the Lord. Sister, Sister uh, um, Ibanez, if you'd like to come, can we sing that song? Turn your eyes upon Jesus.